we are, you know, really invested in people. Our approach is very people-centered. We take to heart what retired Forest Service social scientist Sarah McCaffrey has always said that, you know, fire is a biophysical process. Fire management is a social one. And so I think what brings a lot of joy to me and our team is just working with these inspiring leaders all around the country that are trying to change their place and their future for fire in a better way. Hello, and welcome to Life with Fire podcast, the podcast that explores our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Monti, and I am recording today's episode in my slippers, standing in my garage on our workbench. I just moved into a new house that doesn't have a lot of space for a desk or an office. So that's kind of why I've been putting off putting out a new episode for the last two months or so. I decided today that I just need to get over it and record an episode to the best of my ability. So that's me today, surrounded by spray paint, simple green, a chainsaw, a couple chain links, some tools. Anyway, I am really excited to bring you guys this episode. I have been sitting on this episode for about six weeks now, and I really wish I could have put it out sooner. But we're talking with Merrick Smith from The Nature Conservancy today. He is the North America Fire Director for The Nature Conservancy. And he's also a member of the Wildfire Commission that put out the report back in September. And so this is not the most timely episode in terms of talking about the Wildfire Commission report. But we nonetheless talked to Merrick about the process of creating these recommendations that the report put out, like I said, about two months ago now. We talked about his role in the sort of 501c3 perspective as bringing the 501c3 perspective to the commission. And then we also got a chance to talk about the Fire Adapted Network, Fire Adapted Communities Learning Network and their new website and some of the work that they're doing. And we also had a chance to talk about the treks that I attended in October, the Prescribed Fire Training Exchange at Mount Adams Resource Stewards, which I attended as a public information officer for two weeks in October. And I got to share some of my experiences with him. And then he got to talk a bit about the formation of treks back in 2007 and kind of the reason why treks aligns so well with the Nature Conservancy's mission. So really, this is a great episode if you've ever wondered about treks, if you've ever wanted to attend a treks but haven't yet. This is a good sort of introductory episode to the treks structure, as well as how it's been branching out quite a bit in the last decade or so. They've started to do quite a few international trekses. They've done indigenous trekses. This fall, they did a Spanish language treks. So really aligning with that mission of bringing as many people into this world as practitioners as possible and really sharing knowledge, sharing those experiences. And that aligned with my experience at Trex as well. And I can't wait to be involved with another one. It was really cool to chat with Merrick about this and about why this was something that felt like a priority for the Nature Conservancy to spearhead back 16 or so years ago. So without further ado, I'll stop talking. I will let Merrick take it from here. He has a lot of great things to say. Thank you, as always, for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to getting some more episodes out in the coming weeks. I don't know if people listen to podcast episodes about wildfire during Christmas break, but I'm finding myself with more time right now. And I have about seven episodes that I've been sitting on from so many cool folks that I can't wait to get out into the world. So You can look forward to quite a few more episodes coming out in the next, I don't know, two, three months as I get some more time and as I have time off for Christmas. So anyway, let's hear it from Merrick. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. 
Hey, so glad to be with you on the pod, Amanda. I know we've been talking for some time on social media and other channels, so good to spend some time with you today. Yep. Merrick Smith, I'm the North America Fire Director for the Nature Conservancy. I'm also co-director of the Fire Networks Partnership and most recently served as a member of the Wildland Fire Mitigation and Management Commission. I was representing 501c3 organization with forest management and conservation expertise. <laughs> That's a long seat title on the commission. I've been in conservation for 30 years, and I guess fire has been sort of the interwoven tissue across my various jobs, nonprofit organizations, local government, academia at one point, and then with the Nature Conservancy the last 15 years or so. And so I guess I think of myself more as sort of a, you know, maybe a conservation biologist, but again, have always worked in fire, everything from my first controlled burn in grad school back in the mid-1990s to fire ecology, and then today, you know, essentially leading a program of work across the country that is working to restore landscapes that are adapted to fire, but also helping communities to live more safely in fire-prone areas. Dang, you are like the premier guest for this podcast. I mean, I say that about a lot of folks, but I feel like, you know, your position and your background and the work that you do every day is kind of like exactly what this, it just aligns so perfectly with what we're hoping to amplify on the podcast. So I'm curious how the process for the Wildfire Commission report went. If we could start there and then we'll dive into all the other stuff. But I am curious how that went and like kind of what you're able to contribute from your perspective working with the Nature Conservancy and from the nonprofit standpoint. You know, I already talked to Kelly Martin earlier this week or actually last week about the sort of wildland firefighter perspective. So Excited to see how you kind of braided your experience into that process. Oh, absolutely. Well, first off, I appreciate the kind words, but you have had just a who's who stellar list of awesome people on the pod over your last two years. And so I don't think I compare to, to many of them, but I do appreciate that. We work with many of your guests, and so it's been great to see you amplify their work and their voices and uh, just have really appreciated listening to them and you all this time. The commission was an awesome experience. You know, I feel really humbled to have been a part of it. As Kelly Barton did just a fantastic job on your last episode talking about the process that we went through. These are 50 people that are just so passionate about their work. Many of them have spent their careers working on wildfire-related issues, and they just brought a wealth of expertise and knowledge and frankly, listening skills to the table. I've been part of a lot of collaborative processes in my career. Many of them have been challenging, lots of polarized issues, as you might imagine, you know, around land management in general. I didn't know how this was going to go. We first all came to the table together September a year ago, but this group really came together, really respected one another, I think really has mutual admiration for everybody that was part of the commission, and that really made it successful. We also had just a really stellar staff that were helping to guide us. I'll, I'll particularly call out Tyson and Annie as sort of the co-staff and facilitators. You know, I don't know that we could have made it through the process without them and just having a process that they had designed so well. So again, just a real privilege to be a part of it. And the fact that, as Kelly said, we got to, you know, uh, 148 consensus recommendations is just amazing. With those recommendations, I'd love 
to hear some key themes that maybe apply to your work from those recommendations or things that you feel a certain relatability to or a certain pride over, I guess, in terms of the process and what you were able to contribute? Yeah, well, I was on three of the work groups. You heard Kelly talk about this a little bit last time. We had a number of work groups that commission members could be part of. All those work groups would kind of work through that particular topic for a series of meetings, several months, bring some draft recommendations and ideas back to the full commission. So the full commission always had an opportunity to weigh in on each work group's progress, provide some feedback, some guidance. The work group would go back, continue to hone some recommendations, and then bring them back to the full commission for essentially consensus. And so I was on the landscapes work group, communities work group, and the workforce work group. And I think those three in particular really are a nice cross-section of the type of work that our team leads across North America. We're working on landscapes, we're working on communities. Clearly, you can't do any of that without people, workforce. So, you know, those three were particularly interesting and relevant to our team's work at the Nature Conservancy Workforce in particular, and Kelly talked about this as well, you know, clearly one of those sort of cross-cutting themes. And that work group actually started towards the end of the commission's process, knowing that a lot of these other work groups would spin off ideas and concepts around workforce and allowing that to sort of flow into, you know, that work group's process towards the end. So I'm really proud of all the people that I worked with on those three work groups. And I think that they give a nice holistic sort of systems-based approach to how the commission as a whole wanted to see the recommendations implemented as a package or certainly a suite of recommendations that really tackle, you know, our wildland fire challenges, you know, holistically and comprehensively. Were there any recommendations that you sort of fought for on an individual or like a personal level that you were like especially excited about or that felt especially actionable from your perspective, from your background? Well, if I think about the Nature Conservancy, but a lot of other, you know, non-governmental organizations that are out there as well as tribes and state and federal agencies, you know, the use of beneficial fire is a critical theme. You've talked a lot about it on episodes here on the podcast. I was really glad to see that as one of our sort of, you know, key themes and number of recommendations around that. I'd also say on the community side, you know, Community wildfire adaptation is not something that has necessarily seen the same level of investments and support as a lot of our sort of landscape restoration and wildfire response components. And so it was really good to, one, have a work group built around that, a number of recommendations really supporting community resilience and resilience of the built environment. I think the sort of collaborative approach not only in terms of how the commission used that to arrive at consensus recommendations, but just recognizing the value and importance of collaboration to any of the work that we're going to do in the wildfire space. So again, really kind of a key theme and a set of recommendations to really help support collaboration that I think were, were really important. This is a bit of a stretch. I'm coming up with this as I go here. When I went to this Trex over the last few weeks, it was hosted by this organization called the Mount Adams Resource Stewards. It's a nonprofit. It's heavily localized. Like they do stuff, you know, within the 10, 20, 30 mile radius of their area in Glenwood, Washington, which is a very rural, small kind of former logging area. I was sensing that they and other nonprofits of that nature see a lot of challenges in implementing fire and in having the resources to do so. And I was wondering, you know, 
thinking of organizations like this, like hyper-local organizations that are trying to get this work done at the community level, is there anything in the report that sort of speaks to that specifically in terms of that collaborative approach, in terms of how to get those folks more funding or resources, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. That was something we spent a lot of time on. You know, there are you know, obviously federal agencies and state agencies and a few large NGOs and tribes that have been doing this work for a long time. But, you know, we need an all of society approach. So we need to be trying to empower and elevate the leadership of, of lots of organizations, lots of partners, lots of private individuals, multiple sectors. And so that common theme of how do we help build capacity and these other organizations and these other entities is really key. So I think there are a number of recommendations that really get at the importance of investing in collaboration, investing in collaborative capacity, and there are recommendations around creating more flexibility in federal funding and particularly multi-year funding. So, you know, a lot of organizations are, are getting federal grants, state grants today, but it's often one year. Right. And so you can work on a project for that time, but you can't really build that long term capacity with just one year funding. So multi year funding is really critical for organizations to build collaborative capacity and be able to sustain the work long term. Fantastic. Yeah, that was great. I remembered we were having conversations about the report and how it relates to the work that they're doing and the work that all these other organizations are doing that we were kind of in cahoots with while we were doing this treks and that came up. And I think I remembered something about like community wildfire protection plans being sort of the starting point for opening up funding. Like if you have an established CWPP, like maybe that'll contribute to more potentials for funding from like the feds or I can't remember exactly what it was and I couldn't find it in the report, but maybe is that something that rings a bell to you? Well, we definitely talked about investments, both enabling conditions, just supporting more of these sort of spatial and other fire management planning approaches. But what you might be thinking about as well is the more recent community wildfire defense grants. So that's a new program at the Forest Service that was enabled by the bipartisan infrastructure law that can either fund the development of community wildfire protection plans, or if you have a recent community wildfire protection plan, you can apply for project funding. So that's why the CWPPs come into play and are really important in either having them or having an updated one to be able to apply for that funding. That's a billion dollars that came out of that infrastructure package. So it's a significant investment and again, can be used to help build that type of capacity we were just talking about. Yeah. So everybody go get yourself a CWPP, just like whip one up real quick and go get yourself some federal funding. But it goes back to why the collaborative approach is so important, right? Because you can't really build a robust CWPP that has significant support from the broader community and all the partners that are going to be needed to implement if you're not also building that collaborative approach to putting it together. And these various spatial fire planning tools, things like pods, for example, as an approach to help plan where you want to work together. I love that. I'm glad you brought up pods because I think pods is like the future of adaptation from my understanding. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? It might be a little like operational compared to what you're doing, but maybe it's not. So if you could just give us a quick rundown of what a pod is. Well, you should definitely have Matthew Thompson or somebody from the Rocky Mountain Research Station on and they will do a much better job of explaining it than me. But, you know, essentially, I think the idea behind it was to help with wildfire response. Let's do some pre-planning to think about how we might engage in a fire, 
when one occurs. And let's have some basic zones, you know, places where we know we're going to do full suppression, other places where we want to manage it to protect community-based resources, but then in other places where, you know, under the right conditions, we may be able to just manage this and let it do some good beneficial fire on the ground. It's also been expanded to think about as a proactive tool that could be used for, you know, determining where you want to do prescribed fire or other fuels treatments. So it's approach that, you know, brings together, again, the stakeholders, federal agencies, state agencies, community members, NGOs, tribes to really, again, think about how you want to manage fire on the landscape. I do think, like you said, there is a world of opportunity around using that to help us then flow into other types of plans and implementation. You mentioned earlier that like we need to be focusing more on community adaptation. And I think this is something I've thought a lot about too. I'm obviously not a climate change denialist, but I think we focus so heavily on these factors that feel out of our reach that we end up not focusing enough on the stuff that's within reach. And I feel like that is a big part of this adaptation piece. You know, we're talking a lot about climate change and we're talking a lot about how we can mitigate those impacts. But I think talking at the community level about adaptation is so important and we can have both. We can have both of those conversations at once, but I'm seeing one side of that conversation being overshadowed by the other. And I'm just wondering if you have thoughts there, it's kind of like a minefield for you, I'm sure. (laughs) But nonetheless, if you have any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. Well, absolutely. I think people are overwhelmed, right? There's just so much need. There is so much to do. So, you know, I like your wording of focusing on what is in reach you know, we've always talked about it in terms of, you know, finding that common ground and digging there, you know, so just start with some successes and build from that. And in many ways, you can't go wrong. There's a world of opportunity and a world to work on. I think one of the things we've learned over the years, and maybe we'll talk about the Fire Networks partnership in a little bit, but we focused early on in the first decades of that partnership on trying to restore the resiliency of fire adapted landscapes. And so we convened the you know, traditional land management organizations, you know, and TNC was a part of that because we own and manage land and thinking about how do we use fire or what are the right fire regimes for those landscapes that we're trying to restore and manage. What became really clear is that you can't disconnect the ecological from the social aspects of wildfire resilience. And we were really lacking a lot of the practitioners that work in community adaptation. So, you know, municipal and local fire departments, grassroots community-based organizations that are working in their communities to help their neighborhoods prepare for wildfire. And that was what led us to eventually, you know, build on the Fire Learning Network framework and approach, but then create the Fire Adapted Communities Learning Network, which was really working from the communities outwards towards the landscapes and recognizing we really needed that integrated approach to fire management. Yeah, let's talk a bit more about Communities Learning Network. What was the impetus? Like, when did this start? And what was the impetus? And in what ways were you involved? Really, I would just love like a rundown of this. Yeah, absolutely. So the Fire Network's partnership traces its origins all the way back to the National Fire Plan. So if you think about, you know, the 2000 tough year for wildfires in the Northern Rockies, you have the Sierra Grande wildfire in New Mexico. It leads to the federal agencies putting together the National Fire Plan. And in implementing that sort of initial 10-year framework, they wanted to build community-based collaboratives working on the restoration of fire-adapted ecosystems. And so they reached out to the Nature Conservancy because we had programs across the country. We had many community-based programs and projects 
you know, often working with federal agencies. And that really started our partnership in 2002. We recognized early on that we needed to build a network of practitioners that are working on this issue across the country and sort of connect local to regional to national level efforts. And that the networks were really important to really sort of, again, build that long-term community capacity and adaptive capacity that we need in place. So the Fire Learning Network was our first learning network. And then we eventually started doing more prescribed burns in the Great Plains and recognizing that we needed to build a capacity and skill sets, work with different partners on those burns. And we started the prescribed fire training exchanges, which we can talk about your experience in one of those shortly. That program started to bring together fire practitioners from around the country to be able to train together, implement treatments together, and do you know outreach and community engagement together. Building on that, there was a national narrative that was starting that eventually became the cohesive strategy. And as I just said, we recognize that we've been working primarily with land management organizations and agencies, and we were sort of missing the practitioners that are working with communities on community fire adaptation. So that helped us form the Fire Adapted Communities Learning Network. And we partnered with the Watershed Research and Training Center based out of Hayfork, California. They were a longtime partner in the Fire Learning Network. They had led one of the landscapes in the Hayfork Basin. But they also had a community-based approach, worked a lot on community wildfire adaptation, and really had the skill sets to really lead that network. And then the last of our fire networks is the Indigenous Peoples Burning Network. And that, too, kind of grew out of our relationships with partners in Northern California. We'd been working with a number of tribes, the Karuk and the Hoopa and the Yurok, and recognizing that there was a real opportunity to work with indigenous people that are trying to revitalize their cultural fire. And that was a really unique opportunity for those community members to connect and engage with one another. So this whole portfolio is, again, really getting at that integrated fire management, you know, ecological and community-based approach, but recognizing that, you know, we need to be able to support these community leaders that are leading on this work. And you've had a who's who list of them already on your podcast. So folks like Bill Tripp and Will Harling and Margo Robbins and Sasha Berleman, these are great examples of the people that are leading this work in their place, in their community, and working across, you know, landscapes and community resilience. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, my biggest takeaway from Trex really was like taking this thing that it can start feeling theoretical where you're like sitting at a desk and you're talking about this a lot. You're talking about prescribed fire. You're talking to people like I do and you're sharing all these stories or you're sharing these experiences, but you're not actually out on the landscape like doing it very often. And so being able to like bring it to the practical and like be out in the field and be meeting people like actively networking, actively building community and like feeling that, I think that was my biggest takeaway was like the feeling of like showing up and not knowing anybody and like kind of working through that beginning stage where you're like getting to know people, you're introducing yourself or you're like, so what's your position? And then two weeks later, you're like having these more in-depth conversations. You're talking about those burn initiatives that maybe you can partner with them on. You're talking about new opportunities. It's really cool to see it happen in such a short amount of time. And FIRE is such a cool platform for that to happen, that community building to happen. Yeah, that was my takeaway, really, was that it's cool to see that happening in real time. Like what the perceived goal is of this event happening, like actually watching it happen. Well, I'm so excited that you got to finally participate in one. You served as a public information officer on that Columbia Gorge Trex. You know, I mentioned earlier that Trex 
essentially focuses on training, treatments, and outreach. So what was it like for you being a part of that sort of primarily outreach component of the tracks? I mean, it was easy because it's so fun to share about prescribed fire initiatives and training. We had some weather that was not very conducive with burning for a couple of days, kind of in the middle. And then it was easy because there was still training going on. There was still opportunity for learning. There was still networking. The people that we were with and the people that attended the treks were incredible. But the outreach element was really fun is what it was. I just had a great time like finding little stories to highlight or finding little blurbs to write about and taking photos and informing people. We were in a really like rural area and so there wasn't a lot of community engagement involved, but I'd be interested in doing more of that in the future and like having more educational opportunities within the community, not just with the Treks participants themselves. Yeah, that's something I'm going to look forward to next time I help out on one is engaging the community more and doing more, you know, tabling or educational outreach or whatever that might look like. Yeah, that's great. That's one of my favorite things to do sometimes. My job doesn't necessarily let me get out there for the full day of burning sometimes, but I can get out and I can set up a little booth in a parking lot and just talk to people as they come by and they want to know what's going on. So that's always a great opportunity. I feel like the PIO position in particular is something that's overlooked in prescribed fire. You know, we always think about them on wildfire incidents, but such a valuable position and role to play. So I'm glad you got to do that. Yeah, I was too. And it was my first time working on a prescribed fire as an information officer. And so it was a bit of a learning curve for me too. And it was cool to be, you know, both learning and helping other people learn the whole time I was doing, you know, like simultaneously sitting in on training things on training sessions, presentations that were really interesting, and then having to host one myself or having to do a presentation myself. So it was a fun little blend. And yeah, first time doing a prescribed fire information role. So a lot to learn. I think I learned a lot. I think I'm excited to do it again next year or whenever I'm back to doing this kind of stuff. I think I have a lot of takeaways to bring into the next position. What are you guys up to right now that it's exciting to you at the Nature Conservancy? Are there any initiatives that you're super passionate about right now or excited about? Well, we're working with the Forest Service to really expand on the prescribed fire workforce. So, you know, obviously we've been working with them and the other federal agencies on on treks and women in fire training exchanges as well over the last decade or more. So we've had this sort of training focus. Our North America fire team in particular has started to hire on our own prescribed fire practitioners and make those available to projects around the country. So, you know, there's a real desire right now for a lot of people to work in prescribed fire. And many of them like to have short duration assignments. So they want to live where they currently reside but they're willing to travel across the country for three weeks or four weeks or maybe several months at a time. And that sort of surge capacity is really important to a lot of the land managers that are trying to sort of hit their burn windows. We've been hiring on a number of practitioners onto our team, this both TNC staff. In many cases, we can also incorporate other members of partner organizations and tribes into the same sort of cross-organizational crews. So we're really expanding that work with the Forest Service. We're also focusing on diversity. So over 40% of the practitioners we've been hiring over the last year identify as women or non-binary, and over 25% identify as non-white. So just really trying to diversify gender, racial diversity, as well as bringing in the wealth of different perspectives and experiences that affords. Yeah, I love that. I am curious about like the Indigenous Treks events specifically and how that's growing. Because I know, yeah, like you said, it's sort of started in Northern California. And I'm wondering if it's starting to develop elsewhere or if other initiatives are popping up 
I did see like a Spanish language treks. That is so cool. That's happening right now. And then obviously a bunch of international treks and stuff, but really curious about that indigenous practitioner treks. Well, treks in general has been fun to watch because again, I mentioned it started in the Great Plains in 2008, and then it's just expanded all across the country. We've had hundreds of events now. We've had a longtime partner, Jose Luis Duce. He now works for the Watershed Center. He's from Spain. He has connections all over the world. Over a decade ago, he started bringing practitioners from Spain and Portugal and other Spanish-speaking countries to many of those TREX events in the Great Plains, Nebraska, for example. And over the years, we ended up offering a Spanish-language TREX in New Mexico to, again, provide an opportunity for those practitioners and also bring in partners from Mexico and Central and South America. And as you said, we just held one in, in Northern California as well. What's also happened through time is that those practitioners go back home and they want to create a TREX event there. So we've had several now in Spain and Portugal, and there are plans for others elsewhere. We had our first women in prescribed fried training exchange internationally in South Africa earlier this year. We had one in Canada hosted by Jane Park, who you've had on the show at uh, Banff National Park. And we had the Karuk WTREX in Northern California last fall. They were supposed to have another one just a few weeks ago, but unfortunately that one's been postponed due to the conditions out there in Northern California at the time. So that's the first one so far that we've had that was an indigenous-focused WTREX, but I do think there's a huge interest in that. Obviously, we'd like to continue to support the one with the Karuk tribe, but I think there will be others that will you know, pop up as well. We are really invested in people. Our approach is very people-centered. We take to heart what retired Forest Service social scientist Sarah McCaffrey has always said that, you know, fire is a biophysical process. Fire management is a social one. And so I think what brings a lot of joy to me and, and our team is just working with these inspiring leaders all around the country that are trying to change you know, their place and their future for fire in a better way. You'd been posting on your experience at Cascade Gorge, and I know there were some people asking, like, how can I find out, you know, about the next track? So yeah, all those were good suggestions. They can also go to this new website. It'll have all the upcoming treks, upcoming events, and that's everywhere. So that's anywhere they occur in the U.S. or internationally. And then there's also a link there that people can sign up for the networker. So that's uh, every three weeks, we send a newsletter out that covers work across the fire networks and other interests, other areas of interest. And so people may want to sign up and get on that. And that also lists all the application periods for any upcoming treks. Oh, cool. That's so helpful. I feel like sometimes it can be hard to wade through all of the different newsletters and which ones you need for which. So like having everything in one place will be awesome. It'll be a little bit better to find now. It's mm -hmm. always been out there, but a little bit more challenging. So uh, yeah. I think this one site will help with that. Now everybody's like, okay, great. We've produced all these recommendations, but now what? And mm -hmm. so there's a little bit of effort to like try to reorganize ourselves. And so there'll be a couple of new work groups. There'll be one that's kind of working on government relations and then another one that's kind of working on partnerships. So how can the commission members connect with other efforts that are getting behind or advocating for the recommendations? And then there will probably be some topical work groups that arise from time to time because one of the challenges we had with the recommendations is that, you know, we only had a year. Some of these are challenging, right? And so, you know, we got deep on some of them and then others were high level 30,000 foot view recommendations that could still use a lot more work and details to make implementable. So I think that's what, at least for the next six months or so, we could still play a role in that. 
All right, that is the end of today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I hope you learned something. A huge thanks to everybody for listening as always. As I usually do at the end of each episode, I would like to encourage you to share this with somebody who you think might like it. Maybe give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you feel so inclined. And if you are really feeling supportive, we do have a Patreon that you can support by going to the link in this episode's show notes. We have tiers ranging from $3 a month to $20 a month. And all of that funding goes towards supporting projects like our call for pitches to support grassroots storytelling from communities that have been impacted by wildfires, as well as the ongoing editing and production and et cetera costs of this podcast. So if you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you could support us in one of those ways, whether it's sharing or subscribing or reviewing or supporting us financially. So let's wrap things up here. Thanks as always for listening and we will catch you on the next episode.